I'm Dr. Sheldon L. Akins from the Leading Equity Podcast and a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. everyone and welcome to another episode of the reimagined schools podcast a proud member of the education podcast network my special guest this week is best-selling author Catlin tucker a sought-after keynote speaker and international trainer on blended learning models Catlin is a google certified innovator she was named the teacher of the year in 2010 in sonoma county california where she taught for 16 years As a leader in the field of blended learning, Catlin has written numerous books, including Blended Learning in Action and Power Up Blended Learning. Her newest book, Balance with Blended Learning, Partner with Your Students to Reimagine Learning and Reclaim Your Life, will be published in 2020, and it will soon be available wherever books are sold. Catlin is active on social media at Catlin underscore Tucker. She also writes a very popular blog at her website, at CatlinTucker.com. She's a great resource, folks, and as you have a little time over the holiday break, you want to listen to this one as Catlin Tucker has some amazing ideas in how to create a more student-centered classroom. My conversation with Catlin Tucker begins right now. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. have a very special guest today, She's a best-selling author, keynote speaker, and an expert in blended learning. A big welcome to Catlin Tucker. How are you? I'm doing well. You have some exciting things that are happening here as we get ready to move into 2020. You have a new book coming out in January. The name of the book is Balance with Blended Learning. Partner with your students to reimagine learning and reclaim your life, and we certainly want to get into that project. But uh, you're doing a lot of speaking, and uh, actually, before we get too deep into the interview, uh, our our paths actually crossed uh, a few years back. You were the keynote speaker at the Illinois Education and Technology Conference in 2016 in Springfield, Illinois. Oh, wow. You were the day one keynote. I was the day two keynote, and I think they had a big poster of us out in the lobby with, uh, of course, you were the top part. Your, your picture there and what you were going to talk about. And uh, I, I did day two, and I knew I had big shoes to fill uh, after I heard you speak the first day. So we have that connection already. Oh, that's so funny. I actually very, I remember that trip very well. Why would that be? Just enjoying the land of Lincoln or? You know, I feel like it was one of those crazy trips where I had back-to-back speaking. So I was going from there to Nebraska. So it was one of those things where I came in and it was like kind of crazy. And then I traveled and I hit another one. So I just have a a clear recollection of both of those events. Well, I, I went to your keynote on day one just to kind of check it out and get a feel for things because that was actually my first keynote. And, oh wow! Uh, I was surprised at the size of the room, and I was also surprised how many people were there. It was a pretty large group, you know, five, six hundred people, 
And uh, I wish I would have taken the time to come up and talk with you afterwards, but I was so nervous I could hardly think straight thinking about my <laughs> keynote day too. But uh, so enough. glad to have you in Illinois. I was in Illinois for a long time as a school district superintendent. Now I'm in Central Kentucky uh, in higher ed. So uh, I just thought that was kind of a neat story to get things rolling. Very cool. So, and, and did your did your keynote go well? Uh, surprisingly, yes. It, uh, <laughs> at that time, I was a school superintendent. Uh, and a lot of times, you know, uh, school superintendents don't exactly get a lot of um, praise and excitement. Uh, people go to conferences to get away from superintendents. So to, <laughs> to see me grab the mic, uh, there may have been a few groans, but I think I won them over at the end. So um, as you go out and speak, and you do a lot of it, and you're very talented, what is the, the general thought that you have in trying to connect with an audience? A lot of times it's a, it's a really large group. Yeah, it is. I, you know, I've seen so many people deliver inspiring keynotes that are big idea keynotes, you know, the, the kinds of visionary things that we're working toward in education. But I think because of my experience teaching and my experience coaching, I really want to find that balance between inspiring and being practical. How do we anchor these things that we're talking about in actionable things that teachers can do when they leave this conference or this event? Because I sometimes worry that when a keynote is a little too pie in the sky and just that inspirational bit that teachers leave and they're excited, but it doesn't necessarily translate into action when they return to their classroom. So for me, I always want to feel like I'm offering something that is exciting that feels relevant, but is also like super practical that they can take back and implement. Yeah. And, I, and one of the things I like about your keynotes and, you know, whether or not you put a YouTube video out or whatever the case may be is you talk about this idea of really reimagining what teaching and learning could look like today and giving people practical ideas to take back in their classroom tomorrow. And uh, the, I mean, that's kind of been your uh, MO since you've kind of been on the speaking trail. Absolutely. And, and, you know, sometimes I'm like, gosh, is it inspirational enough? Is it big picture enough? But I think sometimes it's just these little adjustments, rethinking workflows, reimagining roles of students that they don't seem revolutionary and yet they can have these really enormous impacts on our daily lives and our interactions with kids and the way we feel about our profession. So yeah, it has definitely been kind of my, my lane, the lane I've been in as a speaker. Yeah. And I think you've, uh, you know, make a lot of convincing arguments. You, you talk a lot about obviously blended learning, which we're going to jump into, but you also talk about project-based learning. You talk a lot about co-teaching and flip learning. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's really about, you know, providing opportunities for teachers to create more higher order thinking questions in the classroom. Yeah. And I, I also think it's really about creating more time and space in classroom to connect with individual learners because, you know, we're hearing so much about personalized learning, but you can't personalize learning if you're not making time to sit with kids and have conversations and figure out where they're at and what they need. And, the reality is that traditional teacher-led whole group instructional design really doesn't allow for that time and space, which is why I've obviously been a huge advocate for kind of rethinking instructional design, blended learning models, project-based learning, all of that. 
And you have a couple of great books that are already out on blended learning, uh, blended learning in action and power up blended learning. Uh, you've had great success in the classroom as a teacher. At what point did the light bulb go off for you? And you kind of had that aha moment as a teacher that we need to do something different and really move toward that blended model approach. I share with teachers all the time. My aha moment was more of like a, oh my gosh, should I have entered this profession moment? <laughs> I think most of my shifts have occurred from places of desperation, just feeling like the classroom I was in wasn't the classroom I had imagined in credential school. I didn't feel particularly effective. I didn't feel like students were engaging and taking risks and wanting to lean into the learning. And so I had to figure out how do I do this job differently? Obviously the way that I had been trained to teach, the way I had experienced uh, learning as a student in school was not working for me. It wasn't working for my kids. So that moment of kind of desperation, that feeling like, God, I am failing at this job that I really want to do well at, that is what drove me to experiment and play with technology and blended learning models. You know, I had the opportunity recently to talk with Michael Horn. He was on the podcast and obviously a, a huge advocate for blended learning expert who's written numerous books. And, and we got into, you know, talking about innovation and different type of things. But at the end of the day, it really comes back to putting students first and letting students be in control of their learning. And I know that's something that, um, you know, you shout that from the rooftops every time you get a chance. I do. And I think ultimately blended learning is this shifting control from teacher to learner. I think that's really exciting. But when I work with teachers, I'm very aware that that's also super scary. Relinquishing that control that so many of us have been used to is a big ask. And I think we need to really consider how are we partnering with our students? How are we building trust and building relationships so we feel more comfortable passing the responsibility, that kind of gradual release of the learning on, onto the learners themselves? Yeah, and, and that's a great point. I, I think too many times there's this misunderstanding just about what blended learning is and what it is not. And a lot of teachers will say, well, we have Chromebooks or we're one-to-one, -one, but you know, it, it, it's not about the device. It's not about what you, what hardware you have in your classroom. It's about how, how the pedagogy shifts in the classroom. And you know, this, this old model of stand and deliver that teachers have really, uh, you know, this old status quo, it, it's really difficult to break that mindset even today, which I, I find fascinating. Well, and in a lot of the workshops that I run, we kind of start by establishing the why. Like, why are blended learning models, why are different models worth even exploring? And so we talk about what are the, what are the challenges and the benefits associated with this kind of whole group teacher-led model? And really, and teachers will say it, they identify very quickly. There are two things that are particularly attractive about it. One, it's easier to plan a single lesson for everybody. And two, it's easier to control students when you are orchestrating the lesson, period. So those are huge drivers that keep teachers kind of 
using this model, even though in the same conversation, they are first to acknowledge that the model is not meeting students' needs in terms of it's too slow for some kids, it's too fast for others, it's not rigorous enough for some, it's too rigorous for others, it's boring for kids, kids can kind of hide and escape. And so they understand there are challenges associated with this model, but I think it's really hard for teachers who haven't been formally trained on weaving technology and blended learning models like into their practice. How do we make this shift? And I genuinely believe that in 10, 15, 20 years, blended learning will just be learning. You know, it will be how we approach learning because technology is not going anywhere. Right now, the challenge is how do we weave together these online and offline learning opportunities so that we're really putting students at the center of the learning experience. And unfortunately, it doesn't sound like a lot of teachers are coming out of credential school with this skill set, even now. You know, I, I have a niece that's uh, doing her student teaching this spring, and she wants to be a high school English teacher. And we were oh, having nice. a conversation over uh, Thanksgiving break about this idea of what a student-centered classroom is. And, and at first, I really struggled with the definition for her. But then it really boiled down to me. I I said, close your eyes if you're in the classroom, and what do you hear most? Do you hear student voices or do you hear adult voices? And if you hear more adult voices than kids, then you've got a problem. The student-centered classroom is about letting them take more ownership of their learning and letting them problem-solve for themselves. Would you agree with that assessment? I would, and I think when teachers are designing lessons, what I would love to see them thinking about in a very intentional way is, am I balancing the online with the offline, the individual with the collaborative, the teacher talk with the student voice? Because a student-centered classroom is a classroom where kids are looking at each other. They're having conversations. They're collaborating. They're co-constructing meaning together. And that means that they're, they're the focus. The teacher isn't the focus. So you're exactly right. If, if the voice you hear most often is the teacher, you are not in a student-centered classroom. And I know you do a lot of blended coaching. So if you go into a school, if I bring you into my school, say I'm a superintendent or principal, and I want you to do a, a, a walkthrough or a needs assessment, what kind of things are you looking for and what does that process look like? So I actually, it it depends. It depends whether they're already using blended learning models or whether we're kind of starting from before, you know, just a traditional mode of instruction. And so if they're using blended learning models, then I'll go in with like a basic blended learning rubric and I will observe kind of these elements that we talked about. Is there a balance of online and offline? Does it look like there are elements in the lesson where students have agency and get to make decisions? How much of the lesson is teacher directed versus student directed? Does it look like any data was used to design the groups or to vary the different tasks students are being asked? to do. So it has less to do about the models themselves and more about what I'm seeing in the design, the facilitation, and the engagement happening in the lesson when I walk through classrooms. And you know, I've also heard you talk about this idea that the reason teachers are just exhausted at the end of the day is because they're in a teacher-directed environment and they're just worn out because it's all on them. They do all the planning, they do all the, all the talking, they do everything. And, uh, you know, that probably leads to a lot of burnout, which is another great reason to go to that center, uh, student-centered approach. 
Oh, it, I, I've come to argue that I think the biggest barriers to innovation are exhaustion and lack of time. It's not, I don't think that teachers are unwilling to change their practice. It's not that they don't recognize there might be other potentially better ways of doing this job, but I think so many teachers are just treading water and don't feel they have the bandwidth to really try anything new, to experiment, to go through that process of kind of failure and iteration. And so that tends to be what slows down progression in this field. And yeah, it's because we are so busy trying to do it all. And I, I don't think we ask students to do enough or maybe the things we're asking them to do, we need to reevaluate what is the value of what we're having them do. And are there other things they could be doing that are more valuable and could also help to lighten our loads a little bit. Um, in the book that's coming out in January, I talk about like, let's partner with our students. Let's see them as true partners in this learning journey. Let's rethink our workflow because to be quite frank, I did a keynote last month where I was listing, not, it was not a comprehensive list, but all of these things that teachers are responsible for designing lessons, facilitating lessons, providing feedback, communicating with parents, assessing student work, attending meetings. I mean, the list goes on and on. And then I said, let's put these in buckets. Like what happens in our eight to three school day and what follows us home or what happens outside of those hours. And the vast majority of the things that we are expected to do are falling outside of our school time because we're spending so much time in the classroom providing instruction and orchestrating lessons. We don't have time to give feedback as students are working. We don't have time to pull students for side-by-side -side assessment conversations or conferencing. And I think that's a big problem. And that's a huge part of the reason that so many teachers are exhausted. And yet when I come in and I talk about, let's rethink these workflows, how can we move some of this into the classroom and really develop relationships with students? teachers get that anxiety of, but the pacing guide and the curriculum, and I've got to get through it all. And I'm kind of like, you can race through it all, but if kids don't get it, if they're not understanding it, if they're not mastering skills, what is the point of racing through curriculum? So it's, it's this real interesting tension right now in education between like, hey, we want to personalize learning for everybody. Uh, we know that's what's best. And teachers being expected to you know, cover massive amounts of standards in a very short period of time with enormous class sizes. And I think that's a great segue into uh, to talk more about the book. Balance has kind of become your theme for 2020. Uh, again, the name of the book is Balance with Blended Learning. You also have a new podcast out called The Balance. So why is this balancing act uh, you know, <laughs> something that you're going to really focus on in 2020? It's been top of mind for me for the last two years, and I think really in part it's because of my own struggle with balance. You know, I wanted to shine light on balance because I see a lot of imbalance in the work I do supporting teachers as a blended learning coach, but I also struggle with balance in my own life, and so the podcast was very much my attempt to shine light on this topic, which I know so many of us struggle with and talk to people and try to figure out out where are these imbalances in education? What are other people doing to address them, to try to achieve more balance in their lives? Um, so yeah, it's been a really interesting overarching theme for me, not just this year, but definitely in the last couple of years leading up to today. My guess would be probably the number one question you get asked the most when you're out speaking is about tech tools. What, what tools do you 
think we should be using in our classroom, which would be the best fit in a blended learning model. But I would also think you have a lot of people wanting to talk with you about different rotation models and how to really create that classroom environment where, where it is a kid-centered approach. Yeah, I do get questions about tools and I'm, you know, I'm a technology nerd. I like love playing around with new tools and exploring, but for me, it, it's not about the tools. The It's much more about the instructional models, creating this time and space to work with kids and allowing kids more agency and allowing them to self-pace and all of those pieces, which technology can allow us to do more effectively. So I try not to shine the light on the tools and more the strategies because the tools are going to come and go. The strategies are going to be here for a while. And the strategies are what I really want teachers to focus on. Um, So that's always kind of my push. Like even my book, my first book, which I wrote in 2012, highlighted a bunch of tools. And half of those tools, I would argue, are probably not even around anymore. But that book still does well, I think, because it's very strategy-based. Like it focuses on real pedagogical problems and how we can solve them using these different instructional models. My guest today is Catlin Tucker. You can follow her on her website at catlintucker.com. She's also very active on Twitter at Catlin underscore Tucker. So you want to check her out. The name of the new book coming out in January of 2020 again is Balance with Blended Learning. Partner with your students to reimagine learning and reclaim your life. So without giving too much of the book away, because we certainly want people to go out and buy the book, what can we expect uh, as we open up the new book in 2020? So my goal is to get teachers rethinking several aspects of their jobs and their roles and the student role. So obviously it's all grounded in this idea of forming a partnership and what do we need to create a partnership with students. I focus an entire chapter on metacognitive skills and how do we teach students to think about their thinking, think about their learning, set goals, track and monitor their progress, and really to be a partner in the learning process, they have to develop these metacognitive muscles, which takes time. It takes routines in the classroom. It takes support from teachers. So part of what I think makes my books attractive to teachers is there's a lot of very concrete strategies, resources that teachers can literally just copy and adapt and use with their own students to kind of help students develop their metacognitive skills. I talk about this idea of rethinking our workflow. And I give some examples of very traditional teacher-led workflows. And then, hey, let's reimagine that as a student-led workflow. I ask teachers to consider why they grade what they grade. Like, what is the value of what we're grading? And is all of this stuff we're grading actually supporting kids in progress, in their progress? Or is it rewarding compliance. I I write about routines so that teachers can pull feedback into the classroom. So they're giving feedback as students work during the process, as opposed to breaking their backs outside of class to give feedback on finished products, which tends to be kind of inconsistent, focuses on minutia, and there's no incentive for students to do anything with it. I write about side-by-side assessments. So really, you know, this idea of if it's worth grading, I think it's kind of worth grading with the students sitting right there so they understand their grade. So a lot of kinds of shifts in when and where and why we're doing things are really central to this book. And, you know, as we look um, throughout any school, uh, you know, take any school out there and you look across the hallway or across the room, you're going to see so many talented teachers. There are gifts and talents 
talents all around us. And this collaborative spirit, I think, is so valuable. And that's why I like to hear you talk about co-teaching. I know you've had some success with co-teaching, but uh, I also think it scares a lot of people because they're just not sure how to insert so many different voices and so many different thoughts into maybe one unit plan. What what can you tell us about co-teaching models? Oh my gosh. I think co-teaching is fabulous. I have been lucky enough to have some very incredible co-teaching partners. And so at my school, they group students in what is called a core. So there's an English teacher, a science teacher, and a history teacher. And when you, you basically share all the same students. And so we would plan our lessons, our units. So they were were very interdisciplinary. And then what was nice is our classrooms are close together. So sometimes we could pull larger groups together in a single room. And then two of us could be working with groups of students. I think part of the issue with co-teaching is there is, you know, like any relationship, there's compromise involved. You're working with somebody else. You are figuring out whose priorities um, you're going to kind of prioritize in a, in a given moment. Sometimes that means your great idea takes a little bit of a backseat to somebody else's adults kind of thinking through curriculum together and working to support students in real time together just creates so much flexibility that I, I mean, I can't, I cannot encourage people enough if they have the opportunity to try it. You, you learn so much from working with somebody else and having somebody else ask you questions about why you're doing something the way you're doing, or, you know, what are the steps we're going to lead students through? There's just a, a lot of intention that comes into designing and facilitating lessons when you're compromising with one other person or a couple of other people in a, in a co-lesson or in a co-teaching kind of model. And, you know, I also remember it, it wasn't too long ago, everyone was really excited about flip learning. It was, it was the next new thing, the next great ice cream flavor, and there was a lot of excitement there. And I still think there's tremendous value in, in using that as, a, as an instructional approach. Why do you think, or maybe it's just my perception, why do you think it really hasn't caught on like we hoped it would? Well, I think flipped classroom definitely garnered some criticism. This idea of, well, uh, the sage on the stage in the classroom isn't super effective. So the sage on the, you know, virtual stage, why is that more effective? There was also a lot of pushback because in the traditional flip classroom, you had teachers sending home lots of video content with students to watch for homework, given the assumption that kids would come to class, like ready to apply that information. And so, you know, if kids didn't have access at home or they just didn't watch the video, then it created this kind of tenuous situation where the teacher couldn't really move forward because the class wasn't all entirely on the same page. What I have observed in my work with teachers and what I tend to advocate for is more the use of video instruction in the classroom. So leaning on video and kind of an in-class flip, which has advantages and it has disadvantages because part of the appeal of the flip classroom is that students would be able to control the time, the place, and the pace of their learning. But if you move the flip into the classroom, they lose control of time and place. Now they still can control the pace of their learning. They can pause the video, they can rewind it, they can access it anytime and watch it multiple times that they need to. So I think there's still a lot of value in, you know, the flipped classroom and having students be able to self-pace through video content, but it's going to look differently than it would in the traditional where you send it home with students for homework. Um, 
So that's what I see more often. So sometimes in a station rotation, they'll build it in and it will be an online station. But again, you have to build this buffer of time around the video. So you can't have a seven minute video and give kids, you know, 10 minutes and assume they can self pace through the video. You have to, I usually recommend like double the time. So if it's a seven minute video, give them 14, 15 minutes so they can pause, they can rewind, they can pace through it. Um, and one of the things I really appreciate about using video content is that we don't have to repeat the same information over and over and over again, which I feel like is one of the most exhausting parts of our job, to be quite frank. You know, I know some kids, they need to hear an explanation multiple times. And when you use video content, they have that luxury. Um, I would also say if you're integrating videos into a playlist, then all of a sudden you have this opportunity to provide instruction on demand when kids need it. So they're making individual progress through the playlist and when they hit the moment where they need to see a model or they need the instruction or they, they need a screencast showing them how to do something, they can access it and self-pace through it. So I love video. I honestly, I wanna say five years ago, almost entirely transitioned away from giving first instruction live. So if I was going to kind of give everybody the same explanation, just a foundational explanation for something, like what is a thesis statement? Where does it go in your essay? What needs to go in it? Everybody needs to hear that foundational information. I don't need to repeat it multiple times. I'll make a five-minute video. They can all have access to it. Then I can spend my valuable time with kids giving them feedback as they're actually writing their thesis statement. So it's about using video strategically to let students self-pace to create more time and space so we're not trapped at the front of the room explaining things. We can actually sit next to students and assist them um, and really give them a little bit more control and agency in a lesson. And if you go to CatlinTucker.com, uh, you'll find some pretty good videos there. She writes a blog, and you actually have a segment there talking about recording directions because it's just so easy to do that, make a three- to five-minute video. If it's instructions that everyone's going to get, uh, instead of repeating yourself over and over and over. So that's that's a great tip right here, and you certainly want to check out the website at catlintucker.com. Uh, uh, the other thing I find interesting is, you know, I've been teaching online myself for the last three years, and it, I, I've just seen this amazing shift in participation going from this old model of this synchronous classroom in which no one wants to raise their hand or no one wants to talk to this asynchronous model online where I have people that can't wait to tell me what they think on a discussion board. So I would also think that would be an integral part of a blended learning classroom. Yeah, actually online discussions were a huge part of my first book because as you know, and I've taught online college level courses too, like the, the amount of online discussion that takes place in an online course, it's really intense. And no matter what you're doing online for online learning, there's going to be a discussion board and online discussion engagement component. And yet what I was realizing is that high school students and the students, the college students I was working with online, they had no idea really how to navigate that space, how to apply to each other in kind of a substantive way. They didn't have the skill to drive discussions forward. And so a lot of what I was trying to do in my first kind of initial stages of blended learning with high school students was how do I support these teenagers in learning how to have 
dynamic academic conversations online and be able to really drive those conversations in a meaningful way. Because like you said, no matter what online course you're taking in the future, online discussions is going to be a huge part of that. And learning how to engage in a meaningful way will make that experience so much more rewarding for students. Well, it's been a great conversation and I've enjoyed spending some time with you. You know, I'm learning so much just sitting here talking about these things. Uh, We have a lot of superintendents, a lot of principals, uh, obviously a lot of classroom teachers. So I'll give you a closing thought. What are some things that you can, uh, you know, uh, as you hit Christmas break, you kind of recharge the batteries. And a lot of times you get a fresh start. You can hit the reset button in January. Maybe your people out there listening want to start uh, a blended learning model, or maybe they want to try co-teaching. What advice do you have for folks to kind of take the plunge as we think about entering 2020? Well, I would say if you're excited about blended learning and you want to try something, think big, start small. (laughs) Start with one model. You're going to make a bunch of mistakes. Just be patient with yourself and, you know, know that making those mistakes is just part of the learning process. I think a lot of times when I work with teachers, they get excited, they implement, and it doesn't go how they expected it to, and they abandon a strategy. And I remind them, like, this is a process. You remember your first couple years of teaching, you probably had a lot of lessons that didn't go how you wanted them to go. And that's okay because you were learning. And the same goes for when you're experimenting with new instructional models. It's going to take time. Um, But I think it's great that we model for our students continued lifelong learning because ultimately that's what we're trying to cultivate. And I think that's a great way to wrap it up. So folks, follow Catlin on uh, Twitter and also check out her website and read her blog. And if you ever get a chance to hear her speak, you want to take advantage of that opportunity. She's the real deal, folks. So be sure to check her out, CatlinTucker.com. And as we wrap it up, folks, as always, do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids. Thank you for listening to the Reimagine Schools podcast with Dr. Greg Goins. Be sure to continue the conversation on social media with the Reimagine Schools hashtag and subscribe to the podcast at reimagineschools.net. You can also help support this podcast by clicking on the listener support link and making a small monthly contribution. Contact Dr. Greg Goins today to invite him to speak or present at your next education conference or professional development day. Please send inquiries to drgreggoins at gmail.com or on Twitter at drgreggoins.